My guest on today's podcast is Sanjeev Aaron Williams. He's a lawyer in Hong Kong in commercial dispute resolution. He has a background in business and tech. He writes on geopolitics and digital economy with steadily growing following on LinkedIn. He has been published in World Money Laundering Report and China Daily. We're going to talk about China's attitude towards crypto and Hong Kong development as a Web3 and crypto hub. Mr. Sanjeev, welcome to our interview. Uh, Sanjeev, let's Thank you, start... Tessa. Pleasure to be here. Sanjeev, let's start with uh, China's attitude towards crypto. Is it true that it's completely different to the Hong Kong's attitude towards crypto? Yes, very much. And again, it's, it comes down to the one country, two systems. I'll be I'll be referring to that a couple of times um, when I'm speaking. But China's position on crypto is actually quite uh, ambivalent because until quite recently, it was not regulated and it was not outlawed. Mainland Chinese uh, invested in Bitcoin on unregulated exchanges, both in China and uh, in other places. And the effect of that was that the Chinese government got very, very concerned. And they were concerned for four main reasons. Uh, the first was corruption, which is quite endemic in China. The second was money laundering potential. The third was capital flight, because you were essentially uh, selling yuan to buy Bitcoin, and then you'd be selling that Bitcoin to trade it, say, into US dollars. So there was a real issue of capital flight uh, from China. And the fourth and probably the most uh, important reason why um, the Chinese government got concerned about crypto and Bitcoin in particular was because it was clashing with the development and rollout of China's central bank digital currency. Now, the point was this, that um, China was quite happy to use and leverage uh, Bitcoin's uh, technology and the blockchain technology in the development of its uh, CBDC. But on no account would they tolerate a decentralized payment network, which is what um, Bitcoin, as you know, symbolized. Okay. Now, there's a there's a, an even higher reason for that, and that's because China operates a command economy. In other words, the businesses and banks take their instructions from the People's Bank of China. That's the the, the central bank. So what happened was the first thing was back in. Um, 2013, and uh, the PBOC banned financial institutions from making transactions in virtual currencies. Then we come right up to date here. In 2021, the PBOC banned all cryptocurrency transactions, cryptocurrency exchanges, and Bitcoin mining. Now, that news made headlines around the world. You probably remember that. And when they, when China banned uh, Bitcoin mining, the miners moved to moved outside China to other countries like uh, Kazakhstan, Canada, Iceland. And the reason they moved out was, in addition to being banned, was that they were looking for more sustainable um, energy sources. So geothermal energy, for example, in Iceland. Okay. So in the meantime, from 2021, when Bitcoin trading and exchanges and mining uh, was banned, China continued in its development and rollout of the central bank uh, digital currency. Now, here's the important thing. Bitcoin for China represents a decentralized, democratized finance. That's what Bitcoin is always intended to be. But this is the complete opposite of the centralized command economy that I referred to. 
China's economy is, is also known as the uh, socialist market economy or capitalism with Chinese characteristics. Now, the important point here, and one of the reasons they, they ultimately banned uh, Bitcoin, was the Chinese government wants to avoid social upheaval. Bitcoin really represented a break from the one-party system, the one-party centralized system, the kind of centralized control that defines China. And if social upheaval was to break out, say, as a result of more people wanting freedom, as a result of using Bitcoin, that would cause a lot of trouble to the ruling Communist Party. In fact, the uh, People's Bank of China, the central bank, actually said two years ago that the introduction of the central bank digital currency was not to cause any social disruption and that cash in the economy would still be maintained. So that's why um, Bitcoin and exchanges and Bitcoin mining are banned and China's central bank digital currency is being gradually introduced. Additionally, they're using the, the payment platforms like WeChat Pay and Alipay, which the Chinese population is already used to. So in order to avoid social disruption, you gently introduce the central bank digital currency while flatly banning Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin exchanges. The other day, um, I don't know whether you saw this, Tesha, there's a, a publication called CoinGecko, and they published a very, very interesting chart of the world's largest uh, banks by assets under management. And the top four places are taken by Chinese banks. Uh, namely, number one is International Commercial Bank of China, ICBC. Number two, China Construction Bank. Number three, Agricultural Bank of China. Number four, Bank of China. Why am I referring to this? Because none of these four banks are crypto-friendly at all. They don't support crypto trading by being linked to a crypto exchange or licensed crypto exchanges. And therefore, they can't facilitate the off-ramp and on-ramp in terms of uh, changing from crypto to fiat and fiat and crypto. So there's the overview of why China is so against Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining and, and cryptocurrency exchanges in general. When did Hong Kong enter the Web3 space and why? <laughs> a very good question. In fact, in fact, I was laughing uh, when I when I realized that because the short answer is uh, they actually officially entered the Web3 space uh, a few weeks ago. In fact, officially on the 1st of July this year, 2023. What happened was the Hong Kong government made uh, an official announcement that they would establish a Web3 task force with effect from the 1st of July. And they have three official aims. I'll just read them to you. The first is to lead innovation in the Web3 space. The second is to create new application models. And the third is to build a Web3 ecosystem by attracting top-notch companies and, and talent. What this is all getting at is um, the government has realized that Web3 um, is going to be based on a number of factors. It's going to be based on um, disintermediation. It's going to be based on security. It's going to be based on transparency. And theoretically, uh, um, perhaps even lower, lower operating costs. So what the Hong Kong government is, is doing by officially stepping into Web3 is to, to look at the 
potential applications in tradition of Web3 in traditional finance, uh, in crypto finance, in trade finance, business operations and uh, daily life. So again, what, what the Hong Kong government is doing is, is really looking to reposition Hong Kong, both as a Web3 and crypto hub, and I'll talk about the crypto hub later, both in terms of TradFi, crypto, business operations, and smart city initiatives. Now, there are two things that can be can be said about this. The first is that Hong Kong actually has a pretty good uh, infrastructure in terms of technology. We have the government's innovation hub, we have Cyberport, we have uh, um, the Science and Technology Park, we have the um, InnoTech Center, we have a number of universities that are uh, all engaging in tech-related um, research and development. There's a very good ecosystem of government grants and government funding. And all of this is now going to fall under the, the an organization called the Digital Economy Development Committee. Um, so you can see that Hong Kong is taking this very, very seriously. Now, I mentioned that all this came into effect very recently on the 1st of July. Why, why is this? Well, a few weeks before that, the, in mainland China, the Chinese government issued a, a document, a policy document, uh, describing Web3, blockchain, and metaverse technologies as strategic initiatives. Okay, that, 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 those are the two words that the, uh, the Chinese government used. And China does not use words carelessly. When they describe something as a strategic initiative, they are taking it very, very, very seriously. And under that Chinese policy document, they actually uh, they're, they're going to set up a new Web3 uh, tech center uh, near Beijing. Now, this tech center is going to complement the work that's being done in southern China in the Shenzhen uh, area, which is just across the border from Hong Kong and makes up the Hong Kong hinterland, which is known as the Greater Bay Area and, and uh, consists of a number of, of uh, 11 cities. So you can see what's happening that on the Web3 development, Hong Kong is aligning with China. It's aligning with the tech centers in China and it's aligning for further growth within the Greater Bay Area. It's been reported that Hong Kong has an ambition to become a crypto hub. Uh, can you talk about Hong Kong's uh, crypto development journey? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's been a very strange journey, um, actually, because Hong Kong was for a while severely criticized uh, in terms of its attitude toward, towards crypto. Um, let, let's, take, uh, let's take 2018, roughly, as, as a starting date. At that time, the Securities and Futures Commission, which is um, one of the government bodies here, works closely in conjunction with the Monetary Authority, which is the Central Bank and also the Financial Services Treasury Board. 2018, uh, late 2018, uh, they had introduced a framework to, to license virtual asset trading platform operators. It was quite restrictive because it was only allowing professional investors. It was very focused on, profession, uh, on investor protection. Now, that's not surprising when you consider what was going on uh, in the crypto scene in 2018. You might remember there were, there were a whole bunch of meme coins coming out. There were a whole bunch of um, ICOs. 
initial coin offerings, a lot of those ICOs turned out to be scams. A lot of people lost uh, a lot of money. So there was this global movement that was looking at crypto, but the traditional regulatory agencies really didn't know, uh, um, you know where they stood. By 2018, Hong Kong certainly had uh, stipulations on crypto trading covering safe custody of crypto assets, uh, uh, strong AML, KYC stuff, cybersecurity protection, institutional clearance. But Hong Kong's approach was very, very cautious compared to other jurisdictions, say like Singapore or the Caribbean or whatever, that were promoting what they called a light touch approach. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Hong Kong's initial cautious approach from 2018 till about 2022 resulted in certain companies getting very, very annoyed with um, Hong Kong. One of them you might have heard of, Tesha, was FTX. Now, FTX was actually operating in Hong Kong up till September 2021. They got very, very annoyed with the Hong Kong government. They didn't think the, the government was crypto friendly. They didn't think the regulations were, were, were good enough. They thought the, the government was dragging their feet. They got really angry. And in September 21, they left Hong Kong and moved to the Bahamas. This was actually a blessing in disguise for Hong Kong because a year later, in the autumn of uh, 2022, as you know, FTX imploded with, with global ramifications. It set off a cascade of other collapses. There was the so-called crypto winter and Hong Kong escaped all of that. There was one exchange in Hong Kong that did collapse for, for fraud. That was, that was a different reason though. Um, it doesn't appear to have been any connections with uh, FTX. So by leaving Hong Kong, FTX actually did us uh, a huge favor because we didn't take a reputational hit in the major way during the crypto winter in which 1.5 trillion US was wiped out. Compare that, for example, to the reputational damage that Singapore sustained. Um, they sustained it on three fronts. One was FTX. Uh, one was three, the other was Three Arrows Capital, and the third was Terra, uh, Doquan, you know, the algorithmic trading and all of that. Singapore got very, very badly hit reputationally. In fact, just as a, just as a side comment, their sovereign wealth fund, Tomasic Holdings, lost $250 million, um, and that uh, attracted quite a bit of publicity. So once all this happened during the crypto winter, Hong Kong began to see a potential opportunity. And it wasn't until about uh, October 2022 that the Hong Kong government proposed a new range of measures intended to rival Singapore as an, uh, as an international crypto hub. And there were three, uh, uh, three factors to this. The, the first was a new licensing regime for virtual asset providers. The second was tokenization of green bonds. And the third was retail retail investors would for the first time be allowed to trade crypto. Now, just on that tokenization of green bonds, uh, Tesha, incidentally, that was the first time that any that Hong Kong had done this. It was the first time it was done anywhere in the world. And uh, those tokenized bonds amounted to, I believe, around uh, $102 million. They were actually done quite recently uh, in mid-2023. So what happened was the thrust of these proposals was an emphasis on what the Securities and Futures Commission called guardrails against actual 
and potential risks. And most importantly, and this has really gone on to help Hong Kong, the SFC decided to follow the principle of what they call same activity, same risk, same regulation. What does that mean? What they were trying to do, and I think they'll, they have, have succeeded in this, is that they were trying to craft a regulatory framework that mirrors or co uh, correlates with the kind of regulatory framework that you would find in traditional assets. And the idea was to create a sustainable and responsible virtual asset sector and to acknowledge their potential. Again, back to Web3, back to distributed ledger technology, back to the metaverse and back to all that. So once the government announced these proposals in uh, October 2022, there was a consultation period that followed in 2023 from about April to June. And both the SFC and uh, the, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority issued circulars. They hosted um, panel discussions. Um, they, they talked to the banks about whether they would be prepared to open bank accounts for companies trading on crypto exchanges. And the effect of this very close collaboration between interested stakeholders and the SFC and the Hong Kong Monetary Authority was it actually laid the basis of trust and discussion because more people in the financial sector began to realize that the Hong Kong government was actually trying to craft a regulatory framework which was in some ways familiar to the traditional finance regulatory framework. So what was the effect? Well, the effect was that crypto operators who fled Hong Kong, uh, FTX was not the only one, who fled Hong Kong for so-called light touch jurisdictions are now actually thinking of relocating back to Hong Kong because Hong Kong now has an overall framework that they think is more holistic. It's a superior regulatory regime. With, 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 which uh, offers uh, stability and predictability. So what's the point? The point of it is really to develop on both the traditional finance and the crypto finance a much deeper, much more resilient uh, capital market where the guiding principles in both the traditional finance and crypto uh, exchange will be investor protection, compliance, and investor education. So what you're going to see are crypto companies taking a, a lot of interest right now. And there, there are different types of licenses um, that are available depending on what you do. For example, if you're a broker or a dealer in virtual assets, or let's say, uh, let's say you're a fund manager investing in virtual assets, or you're a virtual asset trading platform like, like an exchange, or you're a virtual asset service provider, say uh, custodians, cold wallet storage and all that, there are different, different licensing requirements and, and expectations when it comes to uh, dealing with the SFC and getting the right kind of license uh, in all of that. But the important thing to remember is that investor protection and compliance is really at the core um, of, of all of this. The other things that's also been, been brought in from the 1st of June are things like insurance and compensation arrangements. So for example, you know, can you store your crypto assets in cold storage or hot storage? Where if, if you're st storing in cold storage, then if you've got 98% of your crypto assets in cold storage, then you can cover it 
to 50% insurance value. If you if you're storing your crypto assets in hot storage, then you then you obviously you need a, a higher a higher amount of insurance. Um, the other thing, by the way, um, crypto derivative trading at the moment is not allowed, and neither are tradings in uh, stable coins. Okay, so what you have now is this method uh, a system which mirrors traditional finance. It's now open to retail investors. It's all about investor protection, compliance, uh, investor education, investor education. So you can ask, well, okay, that's great. Retail professional investors, what, what can you actually trade? Well, you're going to be trading crypto tokens that are not regarded as, that are not regarded as, as securities. Whoops, that are not regarded as securities. One of the problems that Hong Kong had back in 2018 was how how do you define Bitcoin? It certainly wasn't going to be accepted in Hong Kong's payment system. It, they weren't going to accept it as a, as a security. At best, they were going to accept it as a commodity. And these new regulations that have come in from 1st of June make it very clear that only tokens that are non-security tokens can be traded professional and retail. So at the moment, it looks like Bitcoin, it looks like Ether, further down the, further down the road, it may inc include Solana, Litecoin, that kind of stuff. Because one of the criteria is that these tokens must have at least a uh, 12 month track record and they must already be included in two cryptocurrency indices. So if you consider that Bitcoin and uh, Ether are probably the two most well-known, chances are these are the ones that are going to take off uh, in, in terms of retail trading here in Hong Kong. The other thing to note is just a couple of days ago, I think it was about two or three days ago now, um, the first two exchanges in Hong Kong, uh, Hashkey and OSL, have been granted uh, retail trading licenses. More and more, more exchanges are lining up for these licenses. And the SFC has done something actually quite sensible. What they're saying is that um, if you are prepared right now to accept the SFC's regulations and you put in your application for a full license, you can actually operate as an exchange until the SFC grants you the full license in a few months time. So you can see there's a degree of flexibility uh, all, all built into this. There are, of course, things like uh, disciplinary proceedings, um, you know, custodial arrangements and all of that. But you can see the ecosystem is now in place and it, it is actually attracting a lot of attention. Web3 also includes NFTs. What happened to the NFT space in Hong Kong? <laughs> well, there was the, um, you know, the usual board ape uh, stuff uh, that also showed up. The NFT space is, is uh, getting interesting. We've had a number of NFT uh, art displays around town, uh, again, featuring Bored Apes uh, and a few others. Um, there are companies like um, Artifact Labs, uh, which are issuing NFTs in relation to Hong Kong's history, both the colonial history and, and Hong Kong's uh, modern history. Um, they are, are also, they've just done a deal with the company uh, that owned the Titanic, 
and they are creating NFTs from the Titanic uh, uh, memorabilia. Uh, another one that's coming in, uh, which I think will take off in Hong Kong. Again, this was reported just uh, just a few days ago. The British Museum uh, in London is going to issue NFTs uh, in relation to some of the historical artifacts um, that it holds, and it's holding millions and millions of them. Now, of course, you're not going to own the actual artifact, but you will own the NFT. I think Hong Kong is going to go in in that direction as well. We we recently opened the uh, Hong Kong branch of the uh, Beijing Palace Museum, which has a lot of very, very interesting um, Chinese uh, antiques and all of that from the various uh, Chinese dynasties. So I wouldn't be surprised to see um, NFTs going in that direction. The other, the other direction is uh, NFTs in gaming. Um, that's going to be taking off. Uh, also, uh, NFTs in terms of events. Uh, you might register, say, via a DAO uh, and be given a membership NFT, which allows you to uh, take on certain privileges. So, yeah, the NFT scene in Hong Kong is going to be quite interesting. And right now it's uh, focused on the art and also on the historical significance. Are there any opposing voices to the Hong Kong's crypto ambitions? Yeah, surprisingly, um, one of the opposing voices uh, came from the former uh, chief executive of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, uh, which is our central bank. He uh, according to the newspaper reports, is not at all in favor of uh, this new uh, crypto licensing regime that took place, uh, that came into effect on the 1st of June. Uh, on the basis that uh, crypto has no intrinsic value, it has no balance sheet value, it's highly speculative. An interesting comment when you consider companies like Microsoft, strategy, for example, in the US, Michael Saylor's company, whose balance sheet actually consists mainly of Bitcoin. So it was a, a very surprising news report. I wasn't expecting to see it again. It only came out uh, a couple of days ago, um, and he was quite uh, scathing in his comment. The other, the other uh, objection uh, came from the governor of the Chinese uh, Central Bank, the People's Bank of China. And uh, there's an interesting quote, and he said this. If you stand by the riverbank long enough, you will see the body of Bitcoin floating by. <laughs> so um, you, you can see there's still um, a great divide on the crypto scene between Hong Kong and China. And on that point, um, one thing that, 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 that people need to understand is that the reason Hong Kong went down this crypto route is because its relationship with China after 1997 is pursuant to the one country, two systems principle, whereby Hong Kong enjoys a very high degree of autonomy. And so the Hong Kong government actually referred to this and said, look, this is one of the rationale for our introduction and embrace of crypto and uh, a crypto trading framework to make Hong Kong a crypto trading hub together with Web3 and the associated technologies. What might be the future for Hong Kong's crypto development? 
Well, okay, we've gone through the equivalent of a big bang, uh, which came into effect on, on the, the 1st of June. There's been a a lot of international attention being paid to Hong Kong as a result of this, because we already are the third, the world's third most important financial center. So the fact that we are now actively embracing Singapore, uh, actively embracing crypto and have overtaken Singapore is, is certainly attracting attention. In fact, I would say in future, the, the race is now going to be between Hong Kong and Dubai, because Dubai has made no secret of its intention to be a crypto financial hub. And I'm sure, I'm sure you know about that. The other thing is you're going to see a lot of Middle East money uh, coming into Hong Kong. Why is that? Well, because since December, uh, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping plus the Hong Kong chief executive, uh, John Lee, made trips to Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and all of that uh, to really drum up Hong Kong's case as a financial center. Um, bear in mind that the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is currently uh, working on a joint project with several central banks, which includes the Central Bank of the United Arab Emirates. This is on a CBDC project. So already from that part of the world, there is going to be interest coming in. The other thing is um, you're going to see uh, investment coming into crypto and probably from there into the Greater Bay Area. Um, you're going to see a lot of that. Uh, incidentally, on the crypto uh, framework in Hong Kong, Chinese nationals, mainland Chinese nationals, uh, are banned from uh, investing in crypto in Hong Kong. And similarly, um, any any citizen from a country in which crypto is banned is not allowed to invest uh, in, in the crypto exchanges. So you're going to see uh, an influx of money. Uh, you're going to see a lot of interest. You're going to see uh, people either as virtual asset service providers, virtual asset trading platforms, fund managers, custodians, all coming in to talk to the uh, Securities and Futures Commission as to how they can get the uh, requisite license. So you're going to see a lot of buzz, certainly in the short term and the, the midterm. Uh, how it pans out in the long term, of course, is anyone's guess. But one thing that Hong Kong does have in its favor is that they didn't rush to embrace crypto. They took a very cautious view of it. They saved themselves reputational damage and they put in place uh, a regulatory framework that is being widely uh, acknowledged and widely praised. So I think we have some ways to go and I think we're going to see some pretty good things in the crypto development and Web3 development scene in Hong Kong.